Um, so we are in uh, Malachi, and we're actually taking a look at Malachi 3 today. Um, so we, uh, two weeks ago, Steve uh, did Malachi 1. Last week, Clive did Malachi 2. They, they left me, I kind of can't believe it, but the two old guys left me to do Malachi 3, which is about money. So we're actually talking about money today. I'm like, I can't believe these guys have kind of thrown me under the bus. Here I am. But we're actually going to read Malachi 3. Um, and it was, it was funny because Clive even called me last week before he preached, and he said, Michael, um, could I use the first few verses of Malachi 3 as my last point? And I said, I guess so, Clive. But that was my first point. So we went back and forth on the phone. But if you didn't hear last week, it was really, really good. So we are in Malachi 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Um, I'm going to read through that whole thing. We'll kind of read it slowly. And um, it's really powerful. So just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart as we go. Here we go. If you don't know where Malachi 3 is, uh, or Malachi is, by the way, you're going to find Matthew in the New Testament. You're going to flip a few pages back to the left. So that, those few pages actually represent 400 years of silence where God did not speak to his people. And even as we're preparing, let me say a prayer over us. Lord Jesus, would we not be a church that exists in um, silence? But may we be a church where you are actively speaking in an ongoing way. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Malachi 3, 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord, you are, who, the Lord who you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. He will come, says the Lord Almighty, or the Lord of heaven's armies, or the Lord of the angel armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like silver and like gold. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by in former years. So I will come and put you on trial. That's a little scary, isn't it? God will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widow, who oppress the fatherless, and who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> Verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, what's fascinating to me about Malachi, just as we're reading this, is you get um, sort of God speaking, and one of the very unusual things about this entire book is when God speaks, the people then respond, and the people respond a little bit like an arrogant teenager sort of um, pushing back or rebelling back against God. So look at their response. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me, is what God says. But you ask, how are we robbing you? There it is again, this pushback, this sort of like back-talking to God. In your tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be a not room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines from devouring your fields, 
The vines will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Here it goes again. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Let those who feared the Lord talk, uh, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who serve God and those who do not. Holy Spirit, would you be pleased as we read your word? Holy Spirit, would you enliven our hearts even as we try to unpack and understand what that means? Would you fill us? Would you speak to us? Would you give us great clarity, great wisdom, great insight? And would you actually uh, penetrate our hearts and change us on this day? In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, interesting, um, I was making um, breakfast the other day, and this is one of our um, bowls. And my Abby has a great taste, and when we got married, she signed us up at a store called Williams and Sonoma, and we got these, um, this white china. And so I'm making breakfast, I'm making eggs and oatmeal and some different things, and I reach up into, this was actually for little Ezra who's back there, and um, I reach up and I got this bowl, and I came down and I set the bowl down on a cutting board. Did you hear that? And I thought, that is so funny. This is... And I began, I heard something, and I began to move the bowl, and the bowl cracked. And what I began to see was there was this hairline crack in the bowl. You couldn't tell. You couldn't see it. You couldn't look up in the cabinet and go, oh my goodness, the bowl's cracked. But as I put it down and I set it on our cutting board, we have this big like butcher block cutting board, it made this sound and I went, our bowl is literally cracked. And I felt the Spirit of God almost speak to my heart, sort of impress something on me. And he went, as you're preparing to speak on money, to speak on possessions to my church, know that the view of money, the American view of money, the church's view of money is cracked. It's cracked. And I think there's things that we labor under as a church that is actually fractured. And so one of the things that is very, very hard as we look at a passage of Scripture like this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. One of the very difficult things about this is you can actually take little chunks of Scripture and you could preach on this verse or that verse or this chunk or that chunk. And one of the great detriments um, of current even Bible teaching is that there have been verses Uh, put in the Bible. Now, you may not know this, but um, the Bible didn't always have verses. When it was written, there were no chapters and there were no numbers. It was just this one continuous thing. And the beauty of the verses being added is that we can all say, turn to Malachi 3.1 or turn to Malachi 3.6. And that's outstanding, right? Because we know what verse we're talking about. But the downside of that is, is you can pull a little verse out here and you can pull a little verse out there and all of a sudden you can let that verse uh, stand alone and you can even press your own meaning 
reading into it without putting that verse in the context of the chapter and of the Bible and even of the whole of Scripture. Does that make sense? So, you know, here's a, two little words that I think are very important. Um, when you study the Scripture, uh, you can either use um, exegesis or eisegesis. You ever heard those words? So, so exegesis is when you approach the scripture and you read it and you're actually going to go, okay, Lord, what is this saying? And instead of pressing your own meaning into it, you're actually reading it and you're letting it sit in the whole of the chapter, in the whole of the book, and then in the whole canon of scripture. Whereas eisegesis is something like, I want to preach on uh, marriage, or I want to preach on singleness, or I want to preach on money, and then you sort of uh, scroll and you find a little verse that kind of fits, and you use that uh, to support what your presumption is. And eisegesis can actually be very dangerous when you're unable to park um, uh, the, the uh, verse or the concept of what you're talking about within the whole. So you use the Bible um, to interpret the Bible. So one of the things we're going to take a look at today is how do we actually um, look at God's attitude towards money. And we're not only going to use Malachi, because I think Malachi only gives us a snapshot, but we have to actually park Malachi, um, this chapter, in the book of Malachi, in the Old Testament, and then in the context of the canon of Scripture. Does that make sense? So the question literally becomes, um, can you look at and can you understand the way God sees money? Because I think for many of us, the way we think God sees money is cracked. It's cracked. And we might not even know it. Just like when I pulled this bowl down, it looked, I have tape on it now, but it looked absolutely perfect. I literally set it down, and I couldn't hear anything except that funny little, I thought, that is so weird. First service, I was doing the same thing. Abby doesn't even know this yet. First service, I was doing the same thing. I didn't have any tape on it. It was so good. I had no tape on it. And I'm literally going, do y'all hear that sound? Like, and so I was, I was dinging one side of the bowl, and everybody was kind of like, yeah, yeah, and then I dinged the other, and they're like, oh yeah, we do hear that, and then I, I did it one more time, and it cracked in my hands, and everybody was like, oh, Abby's going to kill you, I mean, it was, it was such a funny little, funny little moment, but uh, it, it, is, it is very, very important that we, I think, grasp and understand as a people the way God looks at money, so that is what we're going to do. A um, couple thoughts here, uh, 20% of the verses um, in the New Testament, so uh, let me say it like this, 20% of the verses in the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, pertain to what? Anybody? Money and possessions. 20%. But we don't like to talk about it, do we? Oh my goodness. Okay, so um, guess how many, if you look at the entire canon of Scripture, so Genesis to Revelation, um, give me a guess of how many deal with money or personal possessions. Ah, you were here for service. <laughs> Somebody else. What's that? 700 verses that deal with money and material possessions. 700 verses. And it's something that it's like we do not even uh, want to talk about. And if I, if I really like went right to the heart of the matter, here it is. My Lord Jesus, your Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus said more about money than any other single subject. Because when it comes um, uh, to, to uh, the, a person's real nature. Um, in, in other words, um, when it comes to who we really are on the inside, money is of first importance, and I would actually even go so far as to say the way you handle money and your possessions is an exact index of your true character. Whoa. 
So all through Scripture, there's this intimate correlation between the development of a person's character and how they handle what? Money. Oh, man, this makes you nervous, doesn't it? Who wants to talk about this? That's why I said, you believe the old guys left this for me? Come on. So here's, here's I think, um, the thing. And I need to be uh, sort of careful in the way I say this, but I said it first service, and I'm going to say it again now. <clears throat> I don't want your money. Saltbox does not want your money. I don't want the biggest building. I don't want the coolest building. I don't want the best place. I want a group of people, a growing, vibrant group of people who are authentic inside and out and who are becoming transformed by the power of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And one of the best indicators of where you are in your journey, one of the best indicators of where you are in your own heart journey with God is how you handle money and personal possessions. This isn't about, hey, walk out of here and give more to Saulbox. No, 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 no. I don't care. I don't want it. But here's what I do want. And here's what God wants is he wants your heart. He wants your life. And the way that you handle money is an indicator of what's really going on in your heart and in your life. So my first point here comes right out of the scripture. It literally says, I think in verse 8, uh, but will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God answers, in tithes and offerings, you're under a curse because you're robbing me. Now, a curse here means the absence of the blessing of God. So if the presence of God, the blessing of God, the purpose of God is gone, you're under a curse. And when we rob God, um, we're literally not giving him what we owe him. So, you know, let's, let's back up from material possessions or money from just a minute and let's look at it like this. God calls us to give him our trust. Um, he calls us to give him our love. He calls us to give him our service, our obedience, our worship, our sacrifice. Uh, we owe God our very selves. He, he created us. So uh, this is um, literally when you hear me talk about surrendering your life to Jesus, you're probably like, Michael, I've heard that almost too much. But no, 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 you got to get this because you don't just um, believe in Jesus. No, 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 you actually give your whole life to him and then you let him take it and make it and shape it as he will. So let's back up again and ask the question, um, why do we owe God anything? Why do we owe God? Uh, number one, he made us. He fashioned us. He formed us. He knit us together. He knows who we are. Number two, he redeemed us. And number three, he bought us with a price. Now think of this, a price. We're talking about money and possessions. What was the price that he bought us with? The gold? Silver? Stocks? Bonds? What did he buy us with? His blood. The blood of Jesus. He gave it all. So this whole idea of robbing God literally reveals um, that the people of God, have, in this day and age, and I would say even today, as the crack illustrates, um, have the wrong idea about their property and, and their possessions. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, let's be real clear. Um, you can either be um, an owner, or you can be a steward, but you can't be both. 
So literally, as I sort of began to think of this or, or move towards this whole thing, is um, you have this concept that, um, do you own, uh, do I own my house? So Abby and I have a house. We have a mortgage on that house, and you can get in the nitty-gritty, I guess, of does the bank own it, do we own it, our name's on the deed, you know, all that kind of hoopla. But at the end of the day, in the eyes of the world, we own our house. But the question actually becomes, um, uh, do we own it, uh, do we control it, or do we steward it? And I think one of the, the magnanimous shifts that has, has to happen for us as believers is we literally stop owning it. We stop controlling it, and we begin to recognize, no, 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 we're a steward of it. So if I'm stewarding it, um, when God calls us to go somewhere or do something or give, all of a sudden it's about how are we managing his thing, not how am I managing and controlling my thing. So it's a, it's, a, it's a radical shift in thinking. So this, uh, there was actually a book written a number of years ago called, uh, I think it was called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But, uh, and I certainly don't agree with everything in the book. But there was a couple of fascinating things. And, and they, the book actually says, um, own nothing and control everything. And that's a, um, an aberrant shift of what the Bible would say, because the Bible would say, own nothing, steward everything. You are a steward. You're called by God to manage um, and even to invest what is his. So when it comes to your money and possessions, you can be an owner or you can be a steward, but you can't be both. When it comes to your possessions, um, your possessions uh, can either um, possess you or you can possess them, but you can't do both. And I'm afraid many of us get possessed sort of by our possessions, so let me, let me say it real clearly like this. This is even probably worth writing down. If Christ is not Lord over your finances and your possessions, then he's not your Lord. You can't have 20% of the things that he talks about being about finances and possessions and not go, if, if that part of us is not surrendered fully to him and given to him, then he's not our Lord. So the, the, when we give our life to Christ, when we're converted to Christ, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that's a supernatural um, sort of experience that ideally produces supernatural responses. So in, in other words, if I think I own everything, um, I'm reluctant to part with it. Let me kind of give you a personal example. Um, I don't always um, hear God in a crystal clear way, okay? Um, in fact, I'm going to tell you a little story, and I haven't heard God this clearly since... Um, when this story happened. But on Christmas Eve of um, 2016, I woke up. I usually get up early, 4.35, 5.30, somewhere in there. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, I sat right up in bed and felt God tell me, this next house is going to be your house. And guess what my response was? What? I don't like that house. That was my response. Now who's the rebellious teenager? Make a note of something here, church. When God begins to speak to you or gives you a direction or moves you, I'm almost convinced that we as a people almost always dig our heels in and resist. It's just nature. I mean, we're watching it here. As soon as God speaks, return to me and I will return to you. And they go, how are we to return? They're always back-talking God. I mean, it is kind of the story of Genesis to Revelation. So Abby and I... Um, I, I come into the bedroom and tell her when she got up a couple hours later, I think I just heard this from the Lord. I don't know what to do with it. This is crazy. And I sat on it and resisted for a number of months. And a number of months later, I actually picked up the phone and I called the owner of the house. And I said, hey, um, what's happening? What are you guys doing just life-wise and house-wise? And he said, well, you're not going to believe it. I took a job in a different state. 
I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, we're moving. And I said, okay. And he said, um, yeah, I'm getting ready to put a new roof on and new bathrooms and new carpet, and we're listing it with a real estate agent in a couple days. I said, what? He said, okay, um, could you stop that process? Could you, can we back that up? Can you like halt the roof and halt the real estate agent and halt the carpet and halt the bathrooms and let's back that all up? And can we, um, can you talk about selling it to me? And so we begin this conversation and lo and behold, we bought the house. Now, here's what's fascinating to me is that house, even though my name is on it, Abby's name is on it, it is not ours. We simply steward it. And that house has been used again and again and again to house this little church as it's grown and as we've planted it. We're still we had a meeting there this week. Church, it's, it's God put us in that house, and uh, it's, it's a different style and in a different neighborhood, and many things different than I think what Abby and I would have gone for, but that is where he planted us. And we, we obeyed him, albeit resistantly, because he had called us to be there, and we are called to be stewards, not owners. See, when God calls you to give and it's yours, you're sort of this, it becomes like a miserly sort of stingy, I don't want to let it go. But when God calls you to give and you're a steward, what do you do? You release that money. You release that thing. You take the jacket off your back because it's not yours. You're merely stewarding what he's giving. Now, I'm not telling you to be unintelligent. I'm not telling you to be foolish. I'm not telling you to, like, give everything to everybody. No, no, no. I'm actually telling you to be more intelligent, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. So uh, one of the things that, that I think many Christians sort of err on in this is um, they actually um, sort of uh, stingily um, divest or, or give their money. Okay, they stingily finally go, okay, I think I want to, and, and I kind of let it go. And I think that's actually a biblical error. I, I think what God calls us to as people is not to divest money, but rather to invest it. So let me give you an example like this. We've got a friend um, who's um, sort of functions uh, like the chief investment officer for a, for a hedge fund. And it's fascinating because they're always researching, they're always studying, they're always looking at balance sheets and P&L statements and, and studying the internal economics of companies. And the reason they're doing that is so they can invest and make a profit, right? I mean, that's the, that's the whole point. So he's actually trying to uncover things that either other people haven't seen or other people don't know, or he's trying to find something where they can literally take millions of dollars in this hedge fund and invest it so they can have an, an enormous return, Right? So, now, let me tie all this together for you. In the last few months, um, Saltbox, uh, we actually cut a $3,500 check to a primarily uh, black South African church facing starvation as a result of COVID. Cool, huh? It was good. They, we have some friends over there in South Africa. They called us, reached out. We got a church that's facing starvation. Will you help us? Absolutely. Elder board got together. Yes, cut a check. Do it. Uh, there was a couple here in Wilmington that was facing tremendous personal loss, and we cut a $5,000 check to them and sent it. We want to help you. We believe in what God's doing in your lives. We want to be a part of it. Uh, there's, um, I have to be careful that I say this, but there's a church um, who's in exile in the country of Turkey who is also facing starvation. Um, they're not legitimate refugees, so they came to Christ, were exiled from their country. They're now in Turkey. Um, they're not legitimate refugees, so the Turkish government will not help them. Um, they don't have refugee status with COVID. Guess what's happened to their work? Dried up, gone. So guess what's happening with their ability to feed their families? Gone. They're literally facing starvation. Put a call into us. This is where we are. We'd heard about it through a, an, an organization we support. I called them. 
cut them a $5,000 check, and we're feeding a 200-member church that meets in Turkey. Um, on the, uh, just recently, we gave 1,100 pounds to a church in Italy to finish some renovations. That was a sort of a growing group over there in that church. Now, why am I telling you this? This is so important. As believers, as Saltbox, as a little church, our job is not to um, uh, divest money or to sort of let money go. No, 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 no. Our job is actually to be companions and participants with God to find out what he's doing, where he's doing it, and then to invest his goods and his money and his kingdom so that the kingdom of God can grow and be blessed. Now, my hope is as we gave to these few churches that in the years ahead, hopefully COVID begins to clear out off our shores, right? And my hope is that we actually put a group of people on a plane at some point and put boots on the ground and actually visit with and bless and serve those churches because that's the body of Christ. But see, when we as a church give money, we as a church, it's not just divesting, it's actually investing. So you as believers, I'm not saying uh, to be unintelligent with how we give, I'm actually saying to be more intelligent. I'm not saying you should walk down the road and just give frivolously. No, 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 no. I'm saying find where the presence and power of God is. Find out what God's doing and then get behind it and bless it. Find out where he's moving and then give towards it. That is, I think, our responsibility. And I would say in this, um, Saltbox is not my church. Do you believe that? Uh, Saltbox is not my ministry. Saltbox isn't even the elder's church. No, no, no. Saltbox is God's church. This is God's ministry. This is God's house. And if you come into a church where you've got a pastor or pastors who are going, my church, my ministry, my thing, you stand up and you leave. Don't sit under that. Because our job is not to own or to control. No, no, no. Our job is to steward what he's giving us in all areas. That's with our kids. That's with our homes. That's with our work. That's with our businesses. That's with our churches. That is our job is to find out what he's doing then become companions and participants with him in blessing and uh, sort of um, being a conduit of heaven. We are literally called to be um, funnels of the presence, power, purposes, and blessings of God in our communities, in our lives, with our friends. Um, We are called to be conduits of heaven. And here's the amazing thing, is when you become a full steward, in other words, when you're not this owner that's trying to control and manage, but when you begin to steward for the king of kings, heaven cannot resist that type of humility of heart posture, and the presence, purpose, and power of Jesus will come. In every area. Because that is what heaven is looking for, is this heart sort of posture. It's what Jesus is looking for. When you get people who are possessed by their possessions, um, you get to see Christians who are miserly and stingy and greedy and terrible to be with, and I'm willing to bet you all know one or two of them. Maybe we've even been like that before. And that's okay. If you have, or even if you are, I invite you just to a spot where you go, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? I've been owning everything that's mine instead of stewarding. So a couple questions as we sort of open this whole thing on um, money that's in the first few verses of this chapter 3. Should we teach people um, that if they obey God, they will be prosperous financially? No. Should we teach people that if they're poor, they're being disobedient? Should we teach people or non-believers that God wants to bless them and make them wealthy? I've heard people do that. Come to Jesus and everything's going to be wonderful for you. I don't know. It'll be wonderful in eternity. I know that. 
But oftentimes, the path that God's called us to can be one of difficulty and suffering. So my second point this morning is that poverty and riches have a variety of meanings in the Bible. In other words, poverty and riches um, can represent the blessing of God and even the, the curse or the withholding, if you will, of God's presence. So the, 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 the curse of God comes when people break God's covenant, um, when they distrust God's word, when they doubt his love, when they disobey his command, when they reject his love or distrust his promises, when they reject his messengers, when they fail to love and serve him alone. And the, the great, um, I think, risk of the American church, of all churches at this moment, is that we actually um, engage in that um, eisegesis, the picking and choosing of different verses, and say, well, if you walk with God, he'll do this for you. But I don't think that is accurate. So let's, let's think of it like this. Um, poverty can be a sign that a righteous person is being persecuted. Psalm 70. Poverty can be a sign that a righteous person is being persecuted. Poverty can be a sign that a righteous person is having their trust in God tested. Read Job 1 and 2 and probably chapter 42. Poverty can be a sign. So it, it, it can be, in Job's case, poverty and his suffering that he went through actually becomes a sign of the blessing and favor of God. You see that flip? So we can't stand up here and just go, well, every time you love God and every time you serve him and when you give your life fully to him, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Not so. You might be. Because I could give you case after case after case where people who walked with God powerfully were also wealthy and who were blessed abundantly. So it would literally, um, it is true that riches can be the blessing of God. It is also true that riches um, can be the curse or the absence of God's presence. Think of the rich young ruler who said, what do I need to do to follow you? I've done everything you commanded, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus says, go and sell it all. And he walked away dejected because he couldn't do that. He could not become a steward. He was in owner. He was a controller. He couldn't step into that spot because it was, it was so locked in his own heart. So it would be, I think, um, disastrous for a righteous person to think their poverty represented the curse of God. I think it would be equally disastrous um, for an arrogant person and a wealthy person to think their wealth meant by itself that God approved of their decisions. See what I'm saying? So many, and let's pause and think about this a second, many of God's mightiest generals were wealthy. Consider King David in the Bible. Now, how did he start, for those of you who know your Bible? He started as a shepherd boy, poor. How did he end? One of the wealthiest guys on the, in the known world at the time. Think of Abraham. If you know Abraham in Genesis, was Abraham wealthy? Super wealthy. Wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. One of God's great generals. Now, think of someone else that you might know, not know about. How about John the Beloved? John the Beloved. He knew the high priest. What's that mean? To know the high priest in the days of John the Beloved, you had to be wealthy. You had to be connected. Now, John's dad was a guy named Zebedee, and Zebedee had a fleet of, anybody know? Fishing boats. Whole fleet. I've actually been to the little village called Bethsaida where John grew up and where he lived, and I stood in the footprint of his house, and it, was, it is not the footprint of a poor man's house. 
John was almost assuredly a wealthy man, the heir to Zebedee and Sons fishing vessels. Now, let's flip that. Many of God's mightiest generals were poor. The Apostle Paul, wealthy or poor? Poor. The Apostle Peter, poor. Here's, here's what I'm trying to bring you to the place of acknowledging, that the Bible warns of the dangers um, and the blessings of both wealth and poverty. And you can't um, sort of regulate yourself into one area or another. In other words, if God has given you great wealth, be wealthy, embrace it, walk in it, and do with what your wealth that God calls you to do. If you're poor, be poor, walk in it, embrace it, walk it out, and, and, and live in the blessing of God in that position. And if you're right in the middle, then be in the middle. Find God um, in the midst of what you're doing. So Proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9 literally says, um, give me neither poverty nor riches. Interesting. Uh, Give me enough to satisfy my needs, for if I grow rich, I may deny you and say, who is the Lord? If I'm too poor, I may steal and thus insult God's holy name. There's risks on both sides of this. Present blessing um, is only a foretaste and a promise of the greater future in heaven. Present curses is only a foretaste of um, eternal darkness and separation from God. So uh, now let's just get practical here for just a second. From Genesis to Revelation, good um, exegesis says that God expects us to give 10%. I'd love to tell you something different. I'd love to shift that or change that or whatever. But here's the deal. Um, As I read it, um, from everything from from Genesis to Revelation, God's biblical minimum is 10%. Off your gross, not your net, those of you who calculate. Now, go back to, I'm not here to get your money. I'm here because God wants your heart. And the greatest indicator of where your heart is is where your possessions are, and your money is. Now, if you would sit with me, and you, if you came and sat with Abby and I in our house, and you said to me, Michael, um, we can't give 10%. I'd go, great, what can you give? 2%. Wonderful, give 2%. Next year, give 3 The year after that, give 4 what God is more interested in than where you are in this moment is are you on a journey towards greater relational intimacy and surrender with Him? He is interested in capturing your heart and capturing your affection. This isn't a um, performance thing. In fact, you may be even sitting out there going, oh my goodness, Michael, I have fallen way short in the area of money. Great, join the crowd. It's the sanctification journey that we're in. There's things in my life, I'm not aware of anything at this present moment, but in the days and the weeks that come, no doubt the Holy Spirit of God will reveal to me that, Michael, you need to surrender this. You need to lay this down. You need to repent of this. And guess what I'll do? Repent. Lay it down. Surrender it. So if you're, if you're even here today and you're going, oh my goodness, I haven't uh, seen sort of God's expectation um, related to giving and money, uh, what do I do? Well, you just start. You repent for not, and you just start. It's okay. Like, it is, this is not a condemnation thing. This is a... Um, begin to walk with him more fully. And if you want the presence of God in your life, the power of God in your life, if you want to walk with him intimately, this is one of the slices of that pie. This is one of the holistic sort of elements that is going to be an indicator of how closely and fully you walk with him. It it just is. It is. I, I would love to tell you something different, but it just is. 
Now, uh, related to kids, um, here's what Abby and I would probably see or do. Um, we believe in, in giving uh, kids uh, an allowance of some sort. So whatever that means for you, it depends. Maybe it's a dollar, maybe it's $10, maybe it's $5 or something in between. It doesn't really matter. But as you're giving to kids, I think one of the things you do is you help them with three jars or three bowls, hopefully not cracked ones. But you literally, so if you give them a dollar and you give them 10 dimes, and apparently we're in a coin shortage or something, so maybe you have to give them dollar bills now, I don't know, but regardless, you humor me, you give them 10 dimes because you're giving them a dollar, and you help them do three jars. Jar one, 10 cents, who's it going to? God. Jar two, 10 cents, who's it going to? Savings. Jar three, 80 cents, who's it going to? Buy whatever you want. Your kid, have fun. Save it up. Buy a new pair of Converse. You know, whatever. I don't know. Do your thing. Buy some Starburst. But, but here's the thing is from a young age, you're actually teaching a child to manage their money. You're actually teaching a child to give to God's what his. And what I would actually recommend is um, if once that jar begins to get some money in it or some coins in it or however you're doing it at your house, get that jar and put it in a Ziploc bag and bring that child to your church and bring them to your pastor or an elder or somebody who knows, somebody who understands, and have that child embrace being a joyful giver, because God loves a joyful giver, it says. I can't quote where that's coming out of. Um, but and have them literally give, because from a young age, you are training a child on what it means to give. You're training a child that you are not a reservoir that is just trying to get and hoard. No, 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 no. You want to be a conduit through which the blessings and even provision of God flows, right? That's where the blessing of God is. <clears throat> So first point, um, stop robbing God. That's like so scary. And I just want to say, if you're there, be at peace. You just have to go, all right, Lord, I got to recalibrate. I got to figure this out. Meet with somebody. We have some great counselors here at the church that can even help with money. There's a trusted couple that I could put you with, and they can walk with you in the area of money management. They are so good. Um, Point number two, poverty and riches have a variety of meanings. In other words, they can mean both blessings or cursings, and if you relegate yourself into one area or another, you're in trouble. It's really walking with him, independence. Number three um, is really what this sort of opens is God says, don't say harsh things about me. So we're kind of shifting in some way um, out of uh, money here because he's literally saying, don't say harsh things about me. It's verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly or harshly against me, says the Lord. And then they back talk. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You know, you can't you just see this angry like, what have we said? Why have we done this? <clears throat> And you have said it's futile to serve God. So point number three this morning, coming right out of Malachi, is don't say harsh things about me. Now, let me dig into this just for a minute. American um, churchianity. American churchianity has developed this really um, noble and beautiful hierarchy of sin. And we tend to go, this sin is really bad. And we don't like people to do that. This sin is really bad. We don't struggle with it, so we're going to like beat them up because they struggle with it. And this sin is really bad. And then somehow, way on down in our hierarchy of um, sin, we have things like uh, fear or anxiety or uh, doubting God 
or saying harsh things about God. And we tend to sort of go, well, because those are more um, heart attitudes, uh, they're not as serious to God. And I would actually um, contend with you and say that when Jesus came to earth and he preached that Sermon on the Mount, um, he didn't um, abolish all of those Old Testament laws. He fulfilled them. And not only did he fulfill them, he actually raised the stakes. So here's what I mean by that. Um, Jesus literally standing on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. Well, most of us in the room haven't murdered anybody, so we're doing okay, right? But Jesus goes, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, don't even be angry. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm guilty of that. And then Jesus flips it, and he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And I'm actually saying you, don't even look. See, what Jesus did is he, he, he took this um, Old Testament mosaic law and he, he, he raised the bar to this level that it's absolutely impossible to live at without the infilling power and presence of the Lord Jesus. And when it comes to sin, there is no hierarchy. Sin is sin before a holy God. And I assure you, you are going to be absolutely shocked by the people who are elevated in heaven and those who are put down in heaven. Let me give you a practical example. Abby and I know a couple um, who... Uh, actually lives, it's crazy, off 90%, excuse me, lives off 10% and gives 90. You'd never know it. All the cars they drive, the house they live in, the clothes they wear, you'd never know it. I didn't know it. Found out and I'm like blown away. They live off 10% and they give 90. I imagine that people like that when we cross the line into eternity, will be the people that God elevates because of where their heart is. It's fascinating, too, because they follow up on the ministries they have invested in. How many people came to Christ, Michael? How many people's lives were changed? Are people being met with and discipled? It's really fascinating. They're not just um, divesting funds. They're actually investing their funds. But God is literally saying here, don't say harsh things about me. There is a danger in doubting me. So our single um, highest aim as believers really should be to engage with and then bring glory to our Father in heaven. And any other motive um, is going to be sin and, and end in sort of a dead end. So number three, there's this risk in doubting God or saying harsh things against God. And then number four, this is a beautiful way to end. The whole chapter ends with this. He says, literally, you are my treasured possession. It's, it's back to Malachi 1 verse 2, which is, I have loved you, says the Lord. It's this revelation of God's great love for us. It, you know, one of the things I do in my own walk and in my own life is I get up early when nobody else is up and the house is still and I start making coffee and I um, go, good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Good morning, um, Abba, Father. And I'm, I'm always a little bit um, hesitant to publicly uh, use Abba because Abba means daddy or papa. And um, they're, they're, I feel like there are people who have taken that Abba and, and make um, this Papa God, this um, Daddy God, and it becomes a touch cavalier where they sort of lose the ancient fear of God. So, uh, but there's a, as I'm up in the morning, there is this um, Abba, Papa God, this, this revelation of this God that loves you fully. You are my treasure. And isn't it interesting that he calls him, he ends this chapter where he um, disciplined and said, you're robbing me. He ends this treasure with this whole flip and says, now you are my 
treasure. You are my possession. And I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. It's interesting because I was driving back from, um, oh, I don't know, a little place uh, north of the city, Hampstead this week. And I, I drove by um, a road. What is the name of that road? Parker Farm Drive. I drove by Parker Farm Drive. And as I drove by, I had this like vivid memory or flashback to being a kid. And I remember driving past Parker Farm Drive, and I loved Parker Farm Drive. Anybody know where that is? Parker Farm Drive is um, out at this place that's now called Mayfair. When I was a kid, so this would have been late 80s, 87, 88, 89, I don't know, but we would drive by, and I remember loving it because you drive by Parker Farm Drive, and it's this huge expanse of green. It's this huge expanse of, it's the biggest expanse of open space I'd ever seen as a kid. And there are these cows out there. That's my moo cow. When Amelia eats um, and she wants more milk, I don't call it milk, I call it moo cow. It's an aside. I mean, nothing related to my story. But I'm driving by. I loved this as a, as a um, kid because I'd look at these cows in this field. Now, if there's anything that I would call us to as a church, it's to this revelation of what will be now. In 1988, I couldn't see Mayfair. 99.999% of people that drove by there in 1988 couldn't see Mayfair. Is Mayfair real? Is it there? You may not be able to see the kingdom of heaven fully. And you may not be able to grasp it fully, but it's there. And if we could live now like we understand the reality of what's coming, it would change the decisions we make. It would change the way we interact with people. It would change the way we invest our money. It would change the way we talk about people that are different from us. It would change the way we love our neighbors. It would change the way we interact with people at work. It would impact us. And if I could uh, forecast anything for us as a church, it would be this, that as we build and as we grow, that we would be the largest possible dragnet and that we would drag as many people with us into the kingdom of God that we would not leave Wilmington the same, that we would not leave this city the same, the neighborhoods the same, the place where we're planted the same, but rather that we would carry this revelation of the eternal view of heaven, the eternal view of God, that we would steward what he's given us, be it much or be it little, and that we would walk as powerful ambassadors for Christ Jesus everywhere we go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm afraid that for many of us, our view of how you see money, how you see finances, how you even see the call for us as Christians to live is cracked. And Father, there should be no condemnation in this room over that. We live in a fallen world, and what we've been taught and what we've inherited from people is often wrong. And Father, I ask that you would have come over this entire church those online, those in the last service, those in this service. And Father, I pray that you would birth a group of people who are committed to stewarding everything you've given us, who are committed not to being owners, but rather to being stewards and to being radically in our generosity, 
Father, I pray that you would move in our house. You would move in this place. And you'd fill us afresh. Father, if there's someone here who feels even condemnation, they'd go, Michael, I'm not there yet, or I'm not doing X or Y or Z. I just ask that you would breathe grace and peace and forgiveness and life. Father, would you meet us where we are? Lord, would you help us take the next step today in our journey to you? And Father, I pray that we could know that we are your treasured possession. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.